Goddag og velkommen til Langsom Samtaler. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg har i den her uge talt med den kanadiske idehistoriker Quinn Slobodian. Nogle kender ham måske fra den bog, han skrev i 2018, der hedder Globalists, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism, som blev en slags international gennembrud for Slobodian. Den bog var en stor idehistorie over nyliberalismen i det 20. århundrede, hvor han fulgte de store teoretikere fra de udviklede og udbredte deres tænker, til de så at sige blev visket i ørerne på magthaverne og blev implementeret i verden. Nu har Quinn Labodian skrevet en ny bog, som hedder Crack Up Capitalism, Market Radicals and the Dream of a World Without Democracy. Den er netop udkommet her i april 2023. I den her bog, der går Quinn Labodian den anden vej. Der går han ikke fra idéerne til praksis, men der opsøger han nogle konkrete steder for at se, hvilke idéer de udtrykker, og hvordan de konkrete steders ideologi har præget resten af verden. Han tager til steder som Hongkong, Singapore, Dubai og visse andre steder, hvor der er udviklet en særlig form for kapitalisme uden demokrati, hvor man ifølge Slobodian har skabt nogle særlige zoner, hvor regulering, almindelig demokratisk dragen til regnskab, skatteforhold og alle de andre regler, der er omkring markedet, enten er blevet suspenderet eller blevet justeret, så de passer perfekt til at optimere indtjening, tiltrække investeringer og arbejdskraft og tjene så mange penge som overhovedet muligt. Det er en ny form for kapitalisme, som man kalder for crack-up kapitalisme. Og det, der ligger i det, er, at man ligesom crack-up betyder at skære noget ud af eller brække noget af. Det er, at man i stedet for at udvikle en idé i centrum, i metropolerne, i tænketankene, som man vil have udbredt til hele verden, så udvælger man sig nogle små steder, hvor man gennemfører nogle eksperimenter, hvor man kan skabe nogle særdeles markedsfavorable vilkår. Det interessante er, at et sted som Hongkong blev beundret af både den britiske premierminister Margaret Thatcher i 1980'erne og adskillige kinesiske ledere. Det vil sige, at det sted, som stod lidt uden for den kolde krig, som både var britisk og kinesisk og sig selv, det faktisk blev til en inspiration på begge sider af det ideologiske jerntæppe. Kommunisterne i Kina var vildt begejstrede for, at man kunne lave en lille zone, hvor man kunne tjene så mange penge. Og Margaret Thatcher var vildt begejstret for, at man kunne lave en lille zone, hvor man kunne tjene så mange penge. Således viser Slobodian i bogen, hvordan der er skabt zoner, ikke kun de steder, jeg har nævnt, men Silicon Valley er et andet eksempel. Der er skabt i Honduras, der er skabt i Somalia, der er skabt i Sydafrika. Særlige zoner, som er en slags undtagelse fra den politiske regulering rundt om. Og hvordan de zoner er blevet til inspirationer tilbage i centrum i de store magter. Så det er ikke en kapitalisme, der går fra metropolerne ud til periferien, fra hovedstederne ud til provinsen. Det er ikke en kapitalisme, der går fra idéer til praksis. Derimod er det en kapitalisme udviklet af små praktiske eksperimenter i det, vi i et gammelt vestligt perspektiv ville kalde for periferien, og som nu virker tilbage på os. Det er den bog og tankerne bag den, og selve crack-up kapitalism som koncept, som Quinslow Bodian i den her samtale udfolder. Well, thank you so much for taking your time. It's been a real treat reading reading your your book. I never connected the dots like like you do, not even tentatively. So it's such an original book, such a pleasure to read it. But but I want to ask you about something else first because I remember the first time we talked, 
that you were very engaged in the demonstrations against the war in Iraq uh, 20 years ago. And that was a, a formative experience for you as, as well. So now we're here. It's the 20th anniversary of, of the American-led invasion of Iraq. And there's a big debate here in Denmark, and I think all over the world. Uh, what are the lessons to be learned from, from, from this war experience? And especially as regards to the war in Ukraine, where some would say, well, we are committing the same mistake all over again. We're entering a war with no strategic end game, no way of how this will play out. Just an enormous moral support for the Ukrainians, like we had moral outrage against Saddam Hussein. Others would say, no, the Russians are making the mistakes that that, that we they're, they're the imperial power in, in invading someone. And no, this is a big question, and it's not even within your field, but you are a historian and, and you've been occupied. How do you see it? You know, one of the things about getting older is that the period in, in your life that used to seem far apart begin to appear closer and closer together. And when I look back at that sort of generationally defining moment of the invasion of Iraq by the United States, it strikes me how close it was to this other generationally defining moment, which was the wave of protests against something like the World Trade Organization, which was part of the spur to my first book, the globalist book. So Seattle is 1999, and then it's only four years later, actually fewer than four years later, that you have the February 2003 um, protests against the American invasion of Iraq. So very quickly, the conversation for you know young people who are sort of globally aware switches from one about alter globalization and the way that sort of economic problems could be solved differently, what kind of governance we could get to to have better social justice, to this geopolitical concern about really outright military force and the sort of what had seemed like old fashioned problems of imperialism in its most kind of iron fisted form. So the, the I mean, and forget the questions of sort of climate that, that got swamped by both of those conversations in some ways. So looking back for me and sort of thinking about where we are 20 years later is an attempt to kind of think those two moments together in a way to sort of mm. say, how can we revisit this question of globalization from the 90s with this question of kind of military geopolitical intervention that we became sort of forced to confront in the early 2000s. Um, and sometimes people put that as the problems of kind of neoliberalism on the one hand and neoconservatism on the other as two kind of guiding ideologies by which the United States you know, acts in the world. So part of the, the book that we're talking about today came out of this this perplexed feeling about the post-Cold War world, right? Was it an era of harmony and integration or was it an era of fracture and fragmentation? And the way that the United States acted imperially to create a kind of um, patron state inside of Iraq kind of poetically uh, captures this dynamic so well because you have at the same time an act of integrating an economic block or creating new markets, expanding global markets. But then what's left in the wake of their invasion is you know, a far more politically fragmented space within which probably the thing that summarizes it most, captures it most clearly is that the Taliban now has proposed using former US military bases as special economic zones to bring in foreign investors. 
So the way that a kind of a militarized attitude to the world and, and an economic attitude to the world can sort of seem to be at cross purposes, but then end up mutually reinforcing each other is something that um, I've always sort of felt intellectually captured by. How do you bring the sort of economics section of the newspaper into the politics section of the newspaper and vice versa? It's, it seems that there's there are a lot of books coming out uh, just this year and last year that are rewriting the history of, of the post-Cold War era. And, uh, and, and looking back, you know, there was this anthem of democracy and, and capitalism and, and spread of, of human rights, a certain, a, a certain op- optimism. Your book takes on this era and this uh, epoch as well. You, you speak about disrupting narratives in the, in, in the beginning of the book, and you face it head on with this, what we thought of or were told to think of as the marriage between capitalism and, and, and democracy. Why did you re- want to rewrite the story, history of this era? Well, you're right that, especially since 2016, I feel like there was this wave of kind of end of democracy books, right? How democracies die, the end of democracy, the Washington Post rebranded itself with the slogan, democracy dies in darkness. So the, you know, the twin victories of Trump and Brexit, I think really posed this problem of, uh, of a political conundrum, right? Like the, the political form of democracy is somehow not holding. It seems to have produced its own kind of grave diggers in a way. Um, the intention of my book and maybe of some other books that have been published more recently with the word capitalism in the title mm. is to say that maybe we shouldn't be looking within the space of the political and the, and the sort of the ballot box and the breakdown of political parties and coalitions, but we should look at how the success and the globalization of capitalism has itself worked to um, present new political possibilities that might indeed be anti-democratic or work against what we would hope to be sort of free and fair elections in which, you know, contesting powers are able to work out their differences and find sort of compromise posts. So it's kind of a, it's a shifting of the attention away from, I think, the political as such to saying that, well, perhaps globalization in its capitalist form has had so much success in a way that it has ended up producing kind of a mentality which is arguably anti-democratic. So the period after the fall of the Berlin Wall, you know, produced enormous new um, volumes of cross-border trade, cross-border investment. And as my book makes clear, that didn't necessarily produce a kind of a smooth redistributive landscape in which all people sort of profited equally. Rather, the way that the money was channeled and invested overseas always sort of privileged some territories against others, some populations against others. So the very success of global capitalism in the last 35 years has been a fragmentating process and one that has produced a sense of absolute in-groups and new absolute out-groups. And when you bring that attitude into politics, when you bring that sort of cutthroat entrepreneurial winner takes all attitude into politics, then you cease to be interested in things like compromises or even the peaceful transition of power. So I've always thought that, you know, Trump, for example, is not understood well by analogy to the 1930s and Nazism or Mussolini, but from like 1980s and 1990s style vulture capitalism, real estate speculation, a moment when you know you could go bankrupt and still keep the company if you had the best lawyers, 
So that, you know, what has been interpreted as sort of anti-democratic populism is I think often just a kind of hyper-capitalism um, expressing what was actually the spirit of the age as much as um, a kind of period of perpetual peace, which some people predicted would follow the Cold War's end. And, the, and we know some of the, the, of course, we've all noticed that there's a peculiar kind of capitalism in Dubai and people have been outraged, especially here in Europe, uh, about the World Cup in Qatar, seeing, well, they have this kind of cap. Everything's for sale without democracy. We, we, were mm-hmm. expected, we weren't expecting mm-hmm. that. So some of these um, zones that you mentioned in the book and elaborate on in the book, Hong Kong, mm-hmm. Dubai, Singapore, we've noticed them and spoken mm-hmm. of them and written about them, but you seem to put them together in, in, a, in, a, in, a, in another pattern. How did you originally come up with the idea of that? Well, I'm partially just following my sources, right? I mean, that's what historians do at their best, I think, is they go out with an, a question and then they allow their sources to kind of speak to them and tell them the answer. And in my case, I was interested in this group of self-described neoliberals who had started to get together since the 1930s and gathered regularly since then to sort of ask the question of what the primary challenges were to the survival of capitalism and how they could be confronted. And in the 1970s, one of the really the main things they were concerned with was kind of, you know, resurgent social democracy and unionism in places like Western Europe and third world nationalism in the global South. And the place that the, where the book begins and where indeed Milton Friedman begins his extremely successful television series, Free to Choose, is in Hong Kong. So he's sitting in Hong Kong in 1978 at a Mont Society meeting, and he's sort of in awe of this uh, solution that he himself has seemed to have felt like he had stumbled across almost, right? That like, wow, this is how capitalism could actually work. And how does it work? Well, it's a colony. <laughs> There's no democracy. Um, economic freedom trumps political freedom. Investor security is more important than redistribution or social security. And this then sort of germinates this idea that, oh, perhaps we can protect capitalism best, not by creating a kind of a global framework, but by creating these kind of liberated zones where you can, you know, insulate political decision-making from the majority rule and make sure that you're engineering kind of things just right for, um, the maximum flow of information, capital, the, the, the logistical sort of oversight of processes of manufacturing nearby and so on. And I mean, this is a well-known story, but it's still startling nonetheless that it was really the kind of exporting of that Hong Kong enclave model to the coast of China beginning in the late 1970s that really becomes the way in which China gradually opens itself up sort of zone by zone to the world economy, you know, in what then becomes the most extraordinary economic history success story, you know, that the world has ever seen from the 1980s onward as China's economic growth goes like that. So on the one hand, you have, I think, people who are attentive to the success stories and the challenges of capitalism who are sort of watching what's happening in Hong Kong and the Hong Kongification in a way of Southern China with one eye. And then with the other eye, they're sort of looking around and saying, where can we recreate that dynamic? Or where is a similar dynamic happening? And the Gulf and the Emirates is experiencing a similar extraordinary success story in this time, not just because of oil prices, because 
a place like um, Abu Dhabi, for example, has oil, but Dubai does not. So how are they succeeding? Well, they're modeling non-democratic managerial capitalism in which the head of state is more like a CEO. And places like Thatcher's Britain are looking at them, looking at East Asia and saying, how can we bring that, import that model in? So you can just through the, the sources, through the individuals even, a Milton Friedman, a Jeffrey Howe, a Margaret Thatcher. You can see her, for example, traveling to Singapore, meeting with Lee Kuan Yew and saying like, wow, <laughs> really something. Um, and of course, she's highly selective in what she likes and, and what she pretends she didn't see. I mean, the fact that you have 90% uh, public housing is something that she obviously did not pay attention to because she sold off public housing back in Britain. The fact that you had a huge sovereign wealth fund that was used to invest and sort of do productive forms of economic industrial policy was also something she left to the side by selling off the North Sea oil to private interests instead of doing a Norway style sovereign wealth fund, which she very well could have and some people suggested. But this idea of creating sectors of the economy that are liberated from normal regulations, that are given special tax treatment, that are seen then as the kind of, um, as existing above and outside of the normal governance procedures becomes not only something that like Thatcher was interested in and rolled out in her first budget in 1980, but literally the most recent budget under Rishi Sunak had this centerpiece, the exact same thing. So what are you gonna do to bring back British economic prowess? You're gonna create these little sequestered ring-fenced areas that have different tax deals, different regulations, get a bunch of federal subsidies or central government subsidies. And those free ports and enterprise zones will supposedly lead to Britain's return or takeoff. So it, it's almost embarrassingly easy to connect the dots actually when you see like the same superannuated elderly British think tanker who was part of Thatcher's team in 1979 is literally still sitting on the advisory board for Rishi Sunak and Liz Truss and Boris Johnson and the 2020s. And that's indeed the case. So some of it is follow the biographies and then it's also follow their ideas. But there's something uh, unusual for me, at least with my narrative worldview, because I used to think of new political orders, new economic system as something that starts in the capitals of the great powers. And mm -hmm. then they're spread out from that. You have great ideas in France or in Berlin or London or Beijing mm -hmm. even. And this seems like it's something that happens on the margins, that you have these zones of exceptions that, that are on the periphery. And from there, they can inspire Beijing as well as, as London. Can, can you sure. tell about, about this dynamic, which was very surprising to me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that was a self-conscious choice on my part, because insofar as there have been histories of, you know, what we would call like the rise of neoliberalism or the move from kind of the golden age of social democracy to a more market-driven neoliberalism by the end of the 20th century, often they're told as ideas of great thinkers, usually Friedrich Hayek, Milton Friedman, sort of whispering in the ears of powerful figures like Ronald Reagan, Margaret Thatcher, and then those ideas end up getting diffused, eventually taken up by third-way social Democrats like Tony Blair and Gerhard Schroeder and so on. The other way to tell the history, though, of neoliberalism that anthropologists, economic sociologists have been doing already, and in some ways I'm just 
following their lead and, and um, helping synthesize things they've already been writing is that actually you should look at the practitioners of capitalism kind of on the ground, less the ideologues, less the philosophers, but the people who are sort of finding leverage, finding cracks in the system, figuring out ways to kind of game the regulatory regimes that exist. And sometimes that means being interested in um, bankers. So the world, offshore world of tax havens, what's the so-called euro dollar market that emerged in the city of London is not a, designed by Friedrich Hayek, right? It's designed by self-interested, entrepreneurial, initiative-driven uh, financial actors and accountants who figure out, oh, we can actually hold dollars offshore in the Grand Cayman Islands or the island of Jersey or even London itself. And Will be away from American regulations. So they're kind of picking away at the kind of regulatory oversight of something like the United States, even at the margins in such a way that eventually those holes become so big that the US just says, forget it, we can't control the world money supply anymore. Like the dollars are just something that the world is going to have to decide the value of according to free market forces. And it's not something we can control from the center anymore. And with manufacturing and export processing zones, you get sort of a similar dynamic where small local actors are given initiative. China is a wonderful example of this. It's not at all the case that there was kind of a master plan that was being hatched in the center of the, um, the Chinese government in Beijing that was then being sent out through directives and deployed at the local level. It was much more the zoning technology, which meant that you would say, okay, here's the deal. This area that we really just draw kind of a line on the map, Shenzhen, for example, is going to have the, the right to like commodify labor, commodify property, create its own set of internal laws and regulations, introduce wages in ways that don't exist anywhere else in China. And if you are a hustler, if you have that like grind set, as they would say in Silicon Valley, and you want to go down and like experience a lot of precarity and insecurity, but also have the chance to maybe get very rich, then get on a train. If you're a Japanese investor who's willing to take the risk, you don't know what's going to happen from one year to the next, then bring your money in. A Hong Kong investor, come in, open a factory. Um, so those kind of like pra pragmatic kind of uh, practitioners of, of relatively unregulated capitalism end up then setting templates and examples which are replicated or admired. And then they also just become magnets for money the one of the ways that it was described in China was ant theory, meaning if you put out a bit of honey, then the ants will just will come like the foreign investors will come, the labor force will come. Um, so that is a, is a sort of an inversion of our usual story of where do we get to the kind of market fundamentalist era? Well, the central powers just enforced it on the rest of the world. You can tell the story the way I do in this book, too, which is like, the, more, the most radical neoliberal actors were often, or indeed always not the ones sitting in London or DC, but the ones happening in, the, in these more experimental areas a little further from the spotlight. So, so this uh, ideology of, or, or if we should reconstruct it, uh, the crack up capitalism as an ideology, not as something that was thought in a think tank then spread all mm -hmm. over the world, uh, it does play a part in, in your book. It, maybe it's not the ideology creating the places, but how, how would you describe that ideology of crack up capitalism? Yeah, I mean, I think that 
one thing that's important about it is it doesn't um, it doesn't sort of adhere to the scales of either the globe or the nation. So one of the things I find very stultifying and kind of limiting in the public debates, especially in the last few years, is the idea that those are the only two scales at which sort of political economy operates, right? Either we're in a global era or we have deglobalization, which means we return to nations. Um, that's just bad empirically. And one of the reasons it's bad empirically is because this crack up capitalism idea I'm, I'm sketching out in the book suggests that we need to always look at scales beneath the nation because that's where capitalism operates at a subnational scale. That you know the, the, the allocation of resources, the distribution of gains, um, the, the, the scarcities that end up being produced, the patterns of indebtedness. I mean, geographers for a long time have been reminding us of this fact that like the nation is not a very good scale to actually understand um, how capitalism actually distributes its rewards and its punishments. So part of the crack up capitalism idea, I think is just uh, a, a, geog a geographic mindset that assumes that nations are in a way secondary to a kind of a whole set of subnational um, technologies and sort of spaces. And that those subnational technolo technologies and spaces can be used to go around existing authorities and sort of produce connections across national borders that can produce you know, greater efficiencies for some people and produce new forms of competition for others. So I think when you take off the kind of the, the, the glasses that to see the world as a world map painted in the colors of countries and see this sort of like the connections between subnational sort of fragmented territories, then new intensities kind of emerge, right? I mean, the fact that Liechtenstein, which I talk about in the book, <laughs> or um, Dubai, which are just extremely small places. <laughs> I mean, like it's, it's impossible to overstate how small these places are. I mean, you could walk across Liechtenstein. I think if you're a decent, like strong Swiss hiker, you could probably do it in a day and a half or something. <laughs> um, so these are places that have no right to be such sites of, of fierce um, intensity of, of capital concentration and capital flows and mobility, but to a kind of a crack up capitalist, it makes perfect sense that they, that there would be a completely uneven world map of, you know, concentrations of wealth, concentrations of power and control, because this search for holes in the regulatory framework, which then produced new laws, which generally legitimize the holes in the regulatory framework and say, actually, it's okay that these places have different rules. Uh, we don't want evenness. Evenness isn't good for competition. Evenness isn't good for, um, for getting an edge on the world economic stage. Means that, you know, that the kind of, the horizon of crack up capitalism is ever more fragmentation, um, which is, disturbing from a kind of a social and political point of view, because you ask yourself, how will that affect populations? How will that affect any forms of representative government? Um, and those are questions that I would say like crack up capitalists don't ask because they are not primarily interested in problems of like social harmony, social order, and certainly collective well-being. that it, it the, you follow the, the competitive impulse as it shrinks territories down more and more. And 
if that means excluding populations, then all the better, because then you get to concentrate the power evermore. And in some of the cases I give in the book, this translates quite literally in the form of des the desire to create new micronations, right? Like new places that could um, shed the kind of um, dead weight of an excess unproductive population and their constant demands for welfare and social security and sort of purify smaller sort of political units as control panels basically for this interconnected world economy. Usually when we speak about capitalism in the Marxian sense, we think of there's a, a globalizing subject of history, thus capital in all different sorts of, of figures and shades and it operates in different ways. It doesn't have to be as banal, but we think of the subject driving capitalism as a, a universalizing subject. And it's not clear to me whether that universalizing ambition is important at all to, to crack up capitalist, because it's also a kind of exit strategy, whether you just want to establish these zones and it's not, you don't want the rest of the world to conform to, to your kind of, uh, of capitalism. I, I'm, I'm not saying it's an unclearness in the book. I'm saying it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's in my mind. How should we understand that? Yeah, no, it's a good question. I think that, you know, the assumption from the point of view of someone like Marx or Lenin writing after him was that capital had an inherent tendency towards scaling up, right? Exactly. That there was a kind of a voracious kind of appetite, a, a hunger for new land and new markets and new resources. And for someone like Lenin, you know, following a British liberal like Hobson, this meant imperialism and it meant a kind of um, a kind of extension of the boundaries of the state to be ever larger and larger. And I think that's in a way still exists as the kind of boogeyman of liberal internationalism today, right? The idea is how do you know that things are bad? And this might be a way to answer your Putin question from the beginning. Well, you know things are bad when existing sovereigns are trying to expand beyond their existing borders. Like that's a sign of like <laughs> things going wrong, right? Yeah. Like that's that's that, leaving aside the people who made apologies for the Iraq invasion. The idea was still, I think, that the thing we should be on the lookout for, worried about, and in, for some people too, the way that capitalism would express itself would be the attempt to turn economic power into political power and to do so in a way that was expansionist. I think that the, the counterintuitive insight of the crack up capitalists is they're like, no, why would we want to govern territory, right? I mean, why would we want the bother of empire? I mean, empire is onerous, it's, it's wasteful, you know, you're courting all kinds of insurgencies and this, you know, assassination attempts at the leadership and so on. I mean, it's, if, if possible, you want the opposite, right? You want to be able to gain all of the economic wealth you have with as few political obligations as possible and as little territory to govern as you can, you know, hence the importance of these international finance centers or global cities that have been so important in the last 40 or 50 years as places where overwhelmingly capturing the value that's being created. So because we still have this empire mentality though, or this empire specter still haunts us, 
somehow I feel like when we look at extraordinary concentrations of power, whether it's in Singapore, Hong Kong, Shanghai, London, New York, rarely would people look at those and say, oh, those are threats to democracy, right? I mean, it could be in the sense that you are, that could be seen as like the root cause of inequality, which is often seen as a threat to democracy. But the sort of the, the geographic um, imagination that is produced when small patches of land have sort of disproportionate power and influence is something that um, itself, I think, needs to be seen as a threat to an existing system of kind of democratic self-determining nation states. And I think that, you know, Silicon Valley is sort of a recurrent theme in the book, especially towards the end. And it's kind of a great version of this because it also has none of the visual kind of features of a global city, right? You go to Silicon Valley, it's like a completely boring place. It's just like a row of like bad cafes and like urban outfitters, and then some very unremarkable homes like sitting close by and a university. And yet clearly this very, this very crack up capitalist mentality I've been describing is like caught on probably more there than anywhere because the idea there is this is even better. You can produce territory digitally that has no footprint or little footprint on the world, has no actual you know, populations being born, dying, needing sustenance. And then you can imagine yourself as sort of exiting or seceding into a digital space. All that's still connecting to the world is like one data center, you know, your server racks, and then everything else happens virtually. So this is, I think, this is, it's interesting to me because it's sort of like if there was an old 19th century idea of empire has to be expansionist that then gets turned into a financial idea of empire is a waste and we want to just control the centers. What the sort of tech moment and the Silicon Valley moment does is sort of reopen the expansionist mentality, but in the space of the internet or something, right? So now once again, you wanna capture attention, eyeballs, clicks, but it's not in a territorial or terrestrial sense. It's in a kind of digitally mediated cyber sense. You, you mentioned near the end of the book, I think actually you quote someone for saying what, that what Silicon Valley misunderstood in Hegel was that the master could never do without the slave. And you, re, right. you, you referred to Singapore as well, saying, well, they mm. could beat the pandemic. They thought they could at least, that they made the perfect plan for combating the pandemic, but they forgot about the working class. And this, mm-hmm. of course, in this whole framework of the book, I think is just a brilliant point because the end of history, and this is also a Hegelian point, and you bring this up near the end that the master can never do without uh, without mm-hmm. the slave. Can you elaborate on that point? Sure. Yeah, that comes from this wonderful classic essay about the Californian ideology from the 90s. But absolutely, I think that what I am describing, this crack up capitalism, is very much a kind of a delusional master mentality in the sense that it sometimes self-consciously, sometimes unconsciously just represses its dependency on um, you know, vast parts of not only the world, but the populations of the world. Because the ability that have been opened up by global mobility means that even the term you just used, like the working class, is in a way no longer applicable in a play, case of a place like Singapore, because the workers that I refer to there are not a class within mm-hmm. Singaporean society, right? I mean, mm-hmm. they are with to a person 
um, non-citizens, you know, a vast majority of the inhabitants of Dubai are not citizens. They're mobile expats or mobile laborers. And in a way, the only version of cap capitalism that works in reality is one that just assumes an uh, infinite pool of reserve labor that can be drawn on at will and deported at will, right? With no rights to complain. And that's true in Singapore, it's true in Dubai. It's all, it was also very much true in South Africa. And I have a chapter there about the idea of the Bantu stand in late apartheid South Africa and the sort of libertarian idea, which was let's get away from apartheid, but not by creating a single democratic nation state in which every person has one vote, because then the black population will clearly outnumber the white population and promptly dispossess them. Let's do it by breaking up South Africa into hundreds of tiny little cantons into which people can come to work, but not necessarily to stay. So in other words, let's recreate the kind of the system that already existed under apartheid South Africa, where black people did all the manual labor, but had none of the rights of the white class, but do it through this geographical fix. And I think that, you know, that is a core part of this vision. I mean, you can only launder out all of the undesirable populations if you are, you know, having them as a kind of mobile but non-resident part of and non-citizen part of your imaginary. And to be honest, you even see this suggestion kind of springing up in places you wouldn't expect. So Branko Milanovic's um, book, Capitalism Alone, which came out a couple of years ago that was very good and insightful, also ended up proposing something similar that like, well, what if we had a kind of uh, a guest worker style program, not so different from the Emirates, where people could, you know, with better labor rights, where, you know, people could come and go as needed. And I think that as soon as you start proposing things like that, you're running up against a very different idea of what a democratic Republican in the R, small R sense kind of version of politics can look like. If you're assuming that large chunks of the work are going to be done by people who have no rights, or votes within the system and can be only drawn on at will, then you're picking and choosing from what globalization has to offer. And you're leaving behind, I think, the idea that democracy is actually a goal. For, for someone like Martin Wolf, who has a, a new book out, uh, The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism, mm -hmm. he, he, would, he would insist that capitalism in the long run cannot sustain itself without democracies, a crisis in, in, in democracy would also be a crisis in, in, in capitalism. And of course, many of these uh, crack up capitalists or the different ideologies, they're not so concerned about the long run. They're not creating something that they want. That, they, it's not, in my, in my understanding, it's not that they have a political project of creating this space as a kind of collective uh, achievement. They want some, something out of it. But he would say that actually, Capitalism needs democracy, and the point of view for many of these neoliberals, and also in, in your former book, was that democracy would be a problem for for capitalism because of the public mobilization, the demand for workers' rights. Mm -hmm. are, are, are these are these uh, crack up capitalists? Are, are they really uh, misunderstanding the the sense to which the extent to which uh, capitalism needs democracy in the long run? Yeah, I mean, I think that argument that democracy and capitalism rely on one another 
are is based in a couple of notions. I mean, one for even someone like Hayek, who you know had his doubts about democracy, was that it's a very good way of having a peaceful transition of power. So if you want to avoid succession struggles, then having free and open elections will usually secure kind of legitimacy for the new leadership. And I think that that is also something that Martin Wolf would agree with too, is that democracy is important for adding political legitimacy to an economic project, which is that of capitalism. But I think that that presupposes already that the practice of democracy in a place like Britain, you know, from where he's writing, for example, is already in like healthy form. The role, for example, of so something that Mariana Mazzucato and Rosie Collington have written their recent book about the role of consultancies, for example, as kind of mediators between elect voters, politicians, and then the policies that actually get created is such that it may be true that elections produce leaders, but then what those leaders do when they have entered office is often happening by a very different calculus than something that the average person might actually embrace for themselves. And the calculus that they're using, a McKinsey or a KPMG, is very similar to the calculus that, um, you know, that the, the Emirates in Dubai are using to figure out what to do with their sovereign wealth fund and where they should allocate resources. It's the, it's the logic of sort of efficiency, productivity, and management and um, outputs that can be expected rather than um, the question of kind of democratic validation or redistributive justice. So I think that, you know, we have already marketized what we call democracy to a great extent in the United States through the opening up of the floodgates of corporate donations is another example. So it's it's already, I think, a bit optimistic to say that we have um, <laughs> something that one could full-throatedly describe as democracy in already. And I guess I'm worried about the ways in which the core functions of state, which have already been to a great extent privatized and outsourced to private utility or public utilities and companies, could you know produce a kind of stable equilibrium, however punitive, <laughs> under those conditions for the long term, right? And that's the the people that I write about in the book include sort of hardcore libertarians who see the gated community, for example, as a kind of a not just a model for what the future could look like, but as a kind of a beachhead in a kind of a frontier of the privatization of public life. So if you're paying for your own police force and you're paying for your own utilities to be installed and you're paying for even your own schools inside of like an enclosed space, then you're starting to prove that capitalism doesn't need democracy in some ways, right, in miniature. And for them, that's good, right? These are just proof of concept. So it's easy for me to envision a kind of the sustainability of non-democratic capitalism, because I think in many ways we can see it um, across the world today. But whether or not that will, you know, satisfy populations who have desires for collective futures that are different than that, I'm more skeptical of, because I think it's harder to kind of constrain um, popular desires in the long run. But I think there are more fixes for this than perhaps Martin Wolf would like to concede. <laughs> you know, many of us, we still live in, in the old European imaginary of, 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 of democracy and believing that 
that at least we're trying to to regulate the economy and distribute wealth and 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 power and and we feel maybe sometimes on the other hand that there's a growing awareness that we can't just sell the football clubs to the oligarchs or that there's a there's a shock after the invasion of Ukraine well we were selling out everything everything that we held dear now we need to control our own supply chains and there's the outrage about the world cup in qatar so i also in my optimistic mind mm-hmm. uh, have a sense that people are waking up and understanding that that capitalism can sell out democracy in a way that we didn't that we weren't willing to 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 envision Uh, earlier and if you look at some of the things that are coming out of the Biden administration what Lisa Khan is is saying we're taking on antitrust or what Catherine Tai Tai is saying then i have a certain optimism uh, mm-hmm. on, on the other. is that just my old fashioned european naivete or do you see some real struggle going on here between the different fronts in the world economy today absolutely no i'm with you i do think there's there's a serious sort of competition right now and a clash between potential ways of organizing the US political economy especially i think that i'll give you a couple of examples um one from before the pandemic and one from after i mean the you remember this competition over where amazon was going yes. to build its second headquarters and this is a classic example of what you know is called incentivized urbanization also sometimes called geo bribery i quote that in my book whereby you know one city after the other basically had to bend over backwards to say like don't worry like we don't have very many unionized workers in our state and like we'll give you tons of tax breaks and you won't have to pay for any of the buildings so it was extremely consistent with this kind of zone way of thinking that you know capitalism fragments rather than integrating and that that's this the state of affairs and that's something that should not be hindered but it should actually be accelerated But in that case you had, you know, a very strong mobilization by social movements across the country most effectively in New York to say like no, like this is a bad deal for the population, for the workers, for even um the, the city itself, the city's budget and finances. And similarly with the Olympics, right? I mean, this is like a mega project that even 20 years ago in my memory would be something that every city would want to have because of the prestige factor the assumption that there would be a multiplication effect and more and more people are like no this are just hand hand handoffs to um you know developers and private interests and actually ends up leaving the the governments actually poorer than when they started so there's i think having that kind of awakening awareness to the leverage that private actors have on public actors is is only a good thing and arguably is happening more. But the other thing I would wanted to mention was the um the resolution of the Silicon Valley Bank uh collapse that just happened uh, recently. And there, you know, there's a lot of discussion now of a reform of the banking system because similarly we have a situation where the management and the production of money has basically been outsourced from the public sector to private banking sector and if indeed what happens is what it looks like it's going to happen which is the federal government says from now on all deposits will be guaranteed not just $250,000 worth then as many people are saying is like well then why are the private actors managing this at all for profit i mean shouldn't this just be a public utility and shouldn't this be something that we just have accounts at the fed and we have a direct relationship to the government that is partially mediated through money and we start to think of money not as only a kind of medium of capitalist competition and rewards and punishments 
but also of like one of the ways in which we interact with the state as political actors and democratic actors. So those things are in the air now. In the Lena Khan example you mentioned, the attention to bringing supply chains back home, the Inflation Reduction Act, which will you know greatly accelerate the move towards producing um, sustainable energy technologies in this country. Those are all, I think, very much counter to the spirit of the crack of capitalism I described in my book. And in that sense, I find it really enheartening and, and quite exciting. And it's, it's a strange moment, actually, for the United States in a way to be like in front of the Europeans on this question of rethinking political economy. So net, right now, it's basically a question of just the, the frugal members of the European Union to kind of catch up with where the Biden political economists are trying to take them. Well, thank you. I think that's a good place to end. We're trying to catch up with where the Biden uh, administration <laughs> is taking this, but we're also a little scared that this is just another way of building a new green industrial complex, perpetuating growth in, a, in, a, in another way. But that sure. will be a topic of another conversation. Yeah. Thank you for your book and your work. It's a pleasure following you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Det var min samtale med den kanadiske idehistoriker Quinn Slobodian, som er professor ved Wellesley College i Massachusetts, og som, der som nævnt, også har skrevet bogen Globalist, The End of Empire and the Birth of Neoliberalism. I næste uge taler jeg med en af de store britiske sociologer. Han hedder Mike Savage. Mike Savage udgav for nogle år siden den store social class in the 21st century, som blev en overvældende succes i det britiske samfund. Den var lavet på ryggen af en serie programmer om social klasser på BBC og baserede sig på et meget stort datagrundlag og blev til en blotlægning af hele det britiske klassesamfund. Sidste år udgav Mike Savage en ny bog, der hedder The Return of Inequality, som er det helt store greb om det britiske klassesamfund, om kapitalismen i det 21. århundrede og den form for ulighed, som breder sig i vores tid og som vi kan se og beklage og kritisere, men stadig har meget svært ved at stille noget som helst op med. Mike Savage har dog et par bud på, hvad vi kan gøre. Hvis man gerne vil høre dem, ja, så skal man lytte med igen i næste uge. Den her udsendelse var produceret af vores gode ven, kammerat og hjælper, Mads Adam Vener. Mit navn er Rune Lykkeberg. Jeg håber, vi høres ved i næste uge.